But now, as it's 100 years since 2FC or RN was born, here's a programme I presented around 50 years ago. And you'll need to listen with very great care. And it's time for Insight. A very special Insight, in fact, number 500. We've been on the air now since February 1965. In that time, Insight has broadcast the thoughts of many eminent men and 14 women, the ideas and philosophies behind the most significant questions in modern science. So for this 500th edition, something rather special. We've been lucky enough to get an exclusive interview with Sir Clarence Lovejoy, one of the most formidable intellects this country has produced. Sir Clarence is now Master of Lancaster College, Oxford, and many of you will be familiar with his pioneering work on psychodiffraction and brain flux theory. He showed that aspects of human personality are organised by discrete parts of the brain in such a way that it's possible to point to three broad types of human nature. This work won him a Nobel Prize in 1963. Sir Clarence Lovejoy was born in the bush town of Canoundra in New South Wales, where he grew up. Now, of course, he spends most of his time in Europe. We recorded this interview with him when he paid a brief visit to Sydney this month. Sir Clarence began by reflecting on how his interest in brain flux first started. I was a solitary child. I used to wander about in the country very much on my own. I was a naturally talented child as far as schoolwork was concerned, and I won a scholarship to the University of Sydney where I read organic chemistry as my main subject, and just developed. I suppose I could attribute a certain amount of it to literary origins. One was the discovery, quite fortuitous, of Schopenhauer when I was rummaging among the books at the Eureka Club. And the other was uh, when we had occasion to come into Sydney when I was quite young. I must have been about eight or nine. And we had occasion to go across uh, Tom Ugly's bridge and of course my curiosity led me to find out quite rapidly that this was really Thomas Huxley and well from there I went straight back to Eureka Club and of course T.H. Huxley and the great Huxley work in the propagation of the Wallace Darwinian material. Were you very gregarious in those days or was it all work? No, it wasn't gregarious. I suppose that I have trained myself to become gregarious and I suppose when I got to Cambridge, uh, gregariousness uh, developed a certain oh, sub-acid flavour. What effects did Cambridge have on you? Oh, it gave me many delightful friends. Uh, it gave me an atmosphere which was a very congenial one. For instance, I had been severely disturbed in my childhood by the extraordinary amount of quite frequently pointless violence which characterised Australian country life and indeed Australian town life for that matter. And Cambridge seemed so effortlessly free from such violence. It was also in sharp contrast to my previous Australian experience and uh, not least at the University of Sydney, it was also regarded as no sin to work steadily at the University of Cambridge and by steadily I mean uh, unceasingly day in and day out and to be totally absorbed in something that really concerned you. And what were you working on there? Oh, I was working primarily on the brain. And of course, I had always been extremely practical man in these matters. That is to say that I was very much concerned with the mathematics uh, of things, and I think I was probably one of the first to realise that there were many problems that we encountered in uh, the more elementary and even some of the more advanced physiological and neurological situations, which could be dealt with uh, most handsomely uh, uh, by computer. 
And so how did it develop? You then decided that each part of the brain had a particular function and you narrowed it down to produce a part of the brain for each segment of personality. Yes, I think probably for a popular program of the kind that you're producing now, I can illustrate it best by restricting myself to talking about the Pons Ponderosus, which has very, very strong associations, I discovered, with the pondering activity in man, that is the capacity for thinking deeply, reflecting, meditating, contemplating, uh, producing, even in a certain kind of man, the mystic. And the lobus levitatis, which is a particular, very tiny area where quite clearly there is that assembly of the things which roughly we call humour. How, in fact, did you begin your work on psychodiffraction? What we had to do was to prove the findings got from monkeys related to people. Uh, so we took some volunteers, uh, mainly impoverished students, and anaesthetised them with alcohol. We couldn't put them to sleep. Uh, they had to be awake for the experiment. Uh, we inserted our diffraction probes to learn the size of their various brain bodies and then told them jokes and puns and measured the electrical activity around the lobus levitatis, gave them uplifting poems to read and watch the change in potential around the pons profundos superior, and so, you see, showed beyond doubt that it was these small regions, no bigger than a speck of porridge, that determined basic factors of personality. Can I just ask here, uh, what sort of experiments you did with animals to first determine these principles of brain flux? Well, essentially with dogs, rats and monkeys. Uh, I remember one particular one with rats, which uh, I suppose these days it would be fashionable to call a breakthrough. I'd gone back to the laboratory one uh, very, very snowy uh, evening uh, with Gertrude after dinner, and I suppose we were slightly muzzy with a very good Madeira. And I... I said, you know, Gertrude, I was thinking as I came along Tennis Court Lane this morning about uh, De La Fosse and uh, his space lattice. I suddenly stopped because it had struck me that possibly here was the answer to a very tricky little bit of something that was just eluding me. You know how things get to the corner of your mind and you can't chase them out. And I said, Gertrude, do you have anything so old-fashioned as a hat pin? As a matter of fact, uh, Gertrude did. I said, I'd like to borrow it as a, as a probe. And so she got this, and I went to the rat that I was working on, and I just peeled back the flap of skin which I had there. Of course, the rat was uh, alive and awake. And I took the pin, and with very, very great care, I pierced the skin surface, there was the probe going into this pink yielding tissue. Extraordinary sensation, almost, you might say, voluptuous sensation of rightness, of perception of truth. That sense that everything is going right because it was gliding in so smoothly into this pulsing tissue. And suddenly, and I'm not given to anthropomorphic fantasies, I don't think any scientist should be, I think he'd be unworthy of his positivist training if he did. But that rat seemed to have on his face 
an extremely interesting, perhaps even satirical smile. And then he folded his paws under his chin. And then he began to look very much as if he were pondering. And I realized, Gertrude, I said, this will probably be the turning point. It was. I wrote that script 50 years ago and offered it to Barry Humphreys, who swiftly said yes, he'd be Sir Clarence. But then his agent called and said, that must have been before lunch, and now it wasn't going to happen. So I got in touch with Fred May at the University of Sydney, Professor of Italian and Philosophy, as well as a star of Suds, the Sydney University Dramatic Society. Here is the rest of that ancient broadcast. Could you explain, in fact, why this probing had such an effect on the rat? I suppose to put it into reasonably lay language, it resulted in an outflow of the catecholamines, which produced a radical displacement of the alpha neurons. And this gives rise to the phenomenon which I described in my paper as pondering. So how did this enable you to develop the theory of there being three sorts of humanity? It was linked with my general theory, a general field theory, uh, that ultimately, of course, all these things were related to ternary patterns. You see, in order to understand any piece of tissue, shall I say, any fibre, you have to have this ready perception of there being three categories. Um, it led me to a very interesting experiment, actually, which was of particular significance during the Second World War. And this is the determination of the category which must lie between inside and outside. And by extension, new categories must correspond to new perceptions. So what is neither inside nor outside is clearly name being consequential on the thingness of thing, if I may be slightly platonically Aristotelian at this moment. It must, in fact, be through-side. Now, through-side is as precise, shall we say, little i, or Napier's constant, or as suggestive as, say, Planck's quantum, or Ceskolenko's cujum. Existence is inevitable, of course, once the quark has been postulated. It offers a set within which we may place such phenomena as well the intersection of time with the timeless, or the green dream rivets custard politicians beneath entropies of etiolated monotremes, or toasted Susie as my ice cream. Now, none of these is unclear or in any way imprecise in ordinary bread and butter meanings, but there are further dimensions. At this point, I think it's useful to bring in the way that you develop this knowledge to change personality in such a way that you could help ameliorate certain congenital disadvantages that ordinary people are born with. If we are to give a proper cognizance of the value of what the elite produces in the world, then we have just got to face up to the fact that some people are born with impaired systems. I mean, we recognize this, but it's much less easy for our type of society to recognize that the person who springs to extremes in violence, loses temper and that sort of thing, or does extraordinarily disastrous things, such as, for instance, in the economic structure where you will have bodies of workers proceeding on no rational basis whatsoever, proceed to demand that they shall have equal access to those things in life which normally and quite wisely have been given to those people who have known how to use them. 
does the psychodiffraction involve the sort of surgery that would change somebody's personality from the one group to another group? Oh, yes, and very beneficially, too. We developed a device the size of a transistor called a cerebral flangwick. Uh, when this is inserted into a precisely determined part of the brain, it will uh, change personality to order. I must say that in the last few months, we've done some really exciting modifications to this, uh, chiefly with the aid of lasers. You'll see the significance of this. There are three broad personality types in the world. The A group, which includes people like Whitlam, Alexander the Great, and myself. And this possesses the requisite brain organization to overcome chaos and apply great efforts of will to achieve great ends. The A group is very small. In fact, I'd say oh, no more than a hundred or so alive at any one time in the whole world. The B group contains those without the will, those with a degenerate pons profundus, but uh, who may be helped by a small operation and the insertion of a flangwick. This group is slightly larger, several thousand strong, and would include Mr. Snedden at a pinch, uh, Bjorka Peterson uh, on a good day, and Ernest Sigley. They could thus join the A group after very severe social, well, I think, regeneration. The final group, which I'll call C, and <laughs> which contains by far the largest section of the population, are those whose brains could never be improved to the level where the will is strong enough to enable the person to behave responsibly, but where psychodiffractive techniques could change them into someone incapable of undesirable behavior. This group would include uh, Mr. McMahon, Al Grasby, and Gary Glitter. Naturally, we're a long way from perfecting ways of helping this group to produce 100% reliable results, but we're already well advanced in uh, cerebrological technique. In fact, uh, we could change the patriot's attitude to their environment by using a device that when it is inserted into the brain of a C-type antisocial polluter and despoiler produces an overwhelming irresistible love of the bush, feeling for small animals and caring for flowers. This, I'm sure, is the way the Australian Conservation Foundation should be directing its environmental campaign. A few flagwick craniectomies would, without question, have saved Lake Pedder long ago. After that, Sir Clarence broadcast, I and Professor Fred May, in the guise of Sir Clarence, were invited to the Mike Walsh Show, Channel 9, and lots of other broadcasts. We had foreshadowed Elon Musk's brain implant, the concept of the wicked elite, and above all, exposed the near total ignorance most Australians had in 1974 of who their scientists really were and how much excellent work they'd done. So why do something so naughty, even undergraduate, on national radio? The ABC, no less. Well, apart from being fun, it was an invitation to the audience to be sceptical and critical, and, if in any doubt, to seek out reliable evidence. More on that later. 